Well, I wonder uh, how many of you are in a place where you're waiting for something and you've been waiting for it for a long time and for whatever reason, it just hasn't happened yet. And I wonder how that makes us feel. How do we wrestle with those things when it comes to our relationship with God? That uh, Pastor Dan has just done a fantastic job over the past couple of weeks uh, navigating through the book of Habakkuk that, you know, we're looking at this series and there's a lot of tough questions. The idea of when God doesn't seem fair or when God doesn't make sense or when God doesn't stop evil or when God doesn't act now. And, and there's a lot of really heavy topics. So as we're dividing up the series, I decided, you know, I'll give him the really easy ones, you know, like God doesn't make sense and evil. If you could just tackle those, Dan, that would be really awesome. No, uh, he just did a fantastic job. And one of the ideas that he talked about about was this idea that, that good theology allows for the space for us to ask really emotional, heartfelt questions, as Habakkuk does in the book. And so one of the questions or one of the dynamics we're going to look at today is when God doesn't act now. And how do we wrestle with that when we, we know God can do something, but it seems like he's not, or we're not sure why. And so in order to give a, a lighthearted illustration of this, I uh, wanted to you know share with you guys, it's uh, it was... Back at, for my birthday in July, Steph and I went to um, the, uh, the fish market down um, in San Diego. Just beautiful, being able to sit like right on the water outside and uh, really enjoy a birthday meal. And right near us, uh, there was someone who was uh, eating there as well. And they had like a tiny, uh, not tiny, it was like a red, uh, a red teddy bear poodle or something like that. And it's just super cute dog. We're asking about dogs and how much it costs. And, you know, once our, once our jaws actually hit the table, we lifted them back up and uh, we're able to just kind of, oh, wow, we would love to have a dog. Uh, but the timing just wasn't right. Because what happens is if you've tried to get a, a dog, at least recently in the first time, uh, our first time dog owner, when you put an application in, uh, they'll ask things like, you know, do you have previous dog experience? And, you know, we say no. And then they don't allow you to, to get a dog because you don't have the experience, which is one of those difficult circumstances because how can you ever get the experience if no one ever gives you a chance, right? And so it's like the idea of when we had our internet go down a little bit ago, uh, a couple weeks ago, and it's like, hey, you know, what number do we call in order to find that out? I'm like, oh, let me look online, except that I can't because the internet is out. And so, you know, sometimes we just have these dynamics in which, you know, we, we struggle with that. But that's off topic. So uh, this idea of we wanted to have a dog, we looked into it, we needed a dog that's hypoallergenic, we were looking for a dog that, you know, wouldn't be too expensive, we really wanted, but we wanted it now, like we're thinking we want to get a dog, and that was in July, and it's been several, several months before any opportunity presented itself that seemed like an actual viable opportunity, because we wanted it now, and we wanted God to answer that prayer now, but that wasn't the right timing. Well, fast forward a few months until uh, about the end of November, early December, and uh, a friend of mine from Aero Leadership, which is a uh, leadership program I went through a few years ago, um, someone I met there, she lives in Colorado, and her family, they have a male golden retriever and a female poodle. And so they posted on Facebook that, you know, they're, they're, they're going to have puppies. And so, you know, we reached out. And we're thinking, if we don't do this now, the chances of us being able to get a puppy is going to be really small because uh, the price was something that was uh, a fraction of what you would normally get for, you would normally have to pay for golden doodles. It's someone that, or it is a hyperallergenic uh, dog. It is one where, you know, we know the breeders, we know it's this, they only had one litter, and so we know this, uh, that's in a good place. And 
So we got to tell the girls on Christmas Day. We had a video that we showed of telling them that we were going to be getting a puppy. And they were just so excited. Uh, if you've seen the video, they're jumping up and down like, we're getting a golden doodle, we're getting a golden doodle. And like Shaylin stops like midair because by the time she landed, she was so excited and so loud that it started to hurt Elise's ears and she started crying. So it's kind of like the, the idea of like, here's the unfiltered version would include Elise crying after that, but we wanted to just give you guys the, you know, the happy version. So this idea of, of recognizing that last Sunday, last Sunday after our second service, after all the preparations of getting ready to have a golden doodle that Steph and Shaylin were reading books on it and they're training me how to train a dog and, and it's just been so fun to see, but Last Sunday after our second service, we drove to San Diego Airport uh, because the family in Colorado flew out and brought our puppy. Uh, and so there's a picture um, of him sleeping. His name is Ember. And so it's uh, from a book series the girls liked. Uh, it's kind of like the first series that as a family we all got into, especially the girls, called The Green Ember. And it's about rabbits and swords and like fighting off birds and wolves. It's pretty sweet. It's pretty cool. But we thought, what a great way for us to commemorate their first love of literature, their first story that they got into and in calling the dog, naming the dog Ember. So he uh, is our golden doodle. We're super excited. Uh, I'm a little, you know, gotten a little bit less sleep and, and kind of was reminded what it was like to have a newborn again with, you know, picking up you know, whatever it is that you pick up with dogs. Um, but just navigating what that's like. But it was so exciting because after the long wait, what felt like us to be a long wait, the answer to prayer happened. But what happens? You know, it's easy for me to give that example. Why? Two reasons. One, it's kind of a lighthearted example. It's a dog, right? Like it's something we're excited about, but it's not something that weighs heavy on our hearts. So a lighthearted example of saying we, we wanted a dog. And then the second example is not that it's just that's lighthearted, but the fact that it came to fruition, right? Like the answer happened where we did get the dog. So it's a nice, oh, lighthearted example at the start of a sermon to be able to share, wow, isn't it cool how when God answers prayer in his own timing and he, you know, may not act the time when we want it, but he acts now and it's great. But what happens, as the song we sang here, here again earlier, what happens when we're right in the middle? What happens when we know that God, you know, has said he's going to do something, but he hasn't yet? What happens when we know God is able to act, but he doesn't? What happens when we want him to move now and he says later? Or... Not yet or no. What do we do when we are longing to be with someone? We feel loneliness and we don't have a friend or, or we don't have a spouse and we're longing for companionship. And we say, God, just help me to meet somebody. And it doesn't happen now. What happens if we're in a marriage a relationship and, and there's brokenness and division and lack of communication and separation and now we say, God, heal our marriage, but it doesn't happen now. What happens when we have our kids and they're, they're struggling with something or they're having an addiction or they're struggling with depression or anxiety or they're hurting or they're being bullied and we say, God, help them and it doesn't happen now. What do we do when we're looking for a job and we're waiting for the opportunity because finances are hard to make ends meet and we're struggling and we're really feeling not just that we can't provide or we can't make something, but then we start wondering where our value is and God doesn't provide now. What do we do when God doesn't act now? 
And with that question off of our lips and that question sitting in our hearts, I'd ask that you join me in a word of prayer as we get ready for what God has through us to answer this question through the book of Habakkuk. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are here in this place, wherever here is for us physically, whether we are physically uh, here at the church campus outdoors, whether we are physically at home watching online. God, may you meet us wherever we are physically, and even more so, Lord. We ask that you would meet us wherever we are, relationally to you, spiritually, however we're doing. May you meet us here again. Because, God, many of us are waiting and struggling, and we know you can do things, but they haven't happened, and there's a gap there. We are sitting here in the middle, as Habakkuk was sitting in the middle, and we cry out to you, Lord. So please meet us here again. I pray that as we dive into your word, that I would decrease, that you would increase, and that you would speak to, in, to us in a personal, powerful, impactful way as we dive into your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. And as you turn there, I want to do just give a quick reminder that, as we've seen over the past few weeks, that Habakkuk is structured as a complaint to God in Habakkuk 1, then God responds later in Habakkuk 1. Then another complaint to God, and then God responds. And that's where we ended last week, is talking about how the Babylonians and how wicked they were, how God was going to use a more wicked nation in order to bring justice to God's people, the Israelites, and how there was a tension there that Habakkuk's like, why are you allowing a country that's worse than us in order to judge us? And God responding that, listen, there will be judgment upon the Babylonians as well. And as uh, Dan mentioned last week, the problem was that that didn't happen now for Habakkuk or didn't happen right away for his people. There were decades that passed before that came to fruition. And so as we unpack that, we see that there's been a complaint, response from God, complaint from Habakkuk, response from God. And then this chapter is Habakkuk's prayer. Some, uh, some of the commentators talk about it's like a psalm of prayer. It's him crying out to God in some of the same verbiage that we would see in the Psalms. One thing that signals that to us is it's not in our uh, New International Version. It's not in the NIV Version. But some of the Bible versions will have the word Selah after verse 3, in the middle of verse 9, and after verse 13, which is often found in the Psalms. And the word is kind of unclear what it fully means, but it's often people think of it as a way to kind of pause and reflect at that point of what was just said. But it's, it's not 100% clear. And I bring that all up to say this is a prayer. This is a psalm. This is God, or excuse me, Habakkuk crying out to God in response to God's dialogue with him over the first two chapters. So that's kind of what verse one just starts off. This is a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, on Shigemoth. And so uh, I know I butchered that. You know I butchered it. We're just going to move on. But this idea that it means, like that's probably a musical or a literary term. But what I want to land on is verse two. Verse two is going to hold the structure for us for our entire message today. Because in this one verse, we unpack and we walk through what Habakkuk says. And he unpacks that throughout his psalm, and then it brings us to a point of where we all need to be in regards to when we're crying out when God doesn't act now. So we're going to read it once all together, and then we're going to break down verse 2 and go further from there. So verse 2 says this, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day, and our time make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. So he's crying out, and 
he's basically laying out what the next several verses are going to look like. And so we're going to unpack this together. Uh, if you're following along, if you want to take notes, or if you're seeing the screen at home, it says this. The first one is that, Lord, I have heard of your fame. And I have heard of your fame. That word fame is, is not um, what we think of fame, as in popularity, um, as in um, just being well-known by a lot of people. It's not a celebrity dynamic. It's this idea of being a fame is more the word uh, brings about the idea of a report or a news. So it's not like, hey, let's build up God's fame. Like, you know, he needs our help to make himself more famous. It's this idea of he is his report of who he is, the news, the, the just status of who God is, is so great that it is so renowned that he is famous. In the most basic of sense, it's saying, Lord, I have heard the report of who you are. I've heard the news of what you can do and what you've done. I, I, I've heard of that. And so he unpacks that. And we look at verses three and four, kind of show us a little bit about his fame, the report of who he is. So I've heard of your fame. Now let's go down to verses three and four. It says that God came from Timon, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens. His praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. We're going to stop there because this idea of Timon is a place where it's, it's connected to where Edom is. Um, and so kind of the backstory there is that Edom, the Edomites were uh, people that came from Edom, or Esau is the name, and Jacob was his brother. They were brothers, and they separated from Jacob is where we get, he became Israel, and that's where the tribes of Israel came from. From Esau became the Edom and the Edomites, and so they became rivals. And then the Holy One from Mount Paran is this idea that uh, many scholars think that Paran is the area around which Mount Sinai was. So it's kind of this idea that God has, it kind of gives a geographical picture of the Holy Land here. Then it says his glory covered the heavens. And this word glory is, is translated um, in the Hebrew, it's this idea of a, of a weight. If you've read C.S. Lewis or heard C.S. Lewis's uh, speech called the, the, the Weight of Glory, the book The Weight of Glory, it's this idea that God's glory is so big, it's, it's like a weight because it's not just this, this vain glory that we have, a selfish ambition or vain conceit. It's this physical, it, it's, it's a tangible uh, acknowledgement of how filled with glory the heavens are. It's a tangible acknowledgement that there's a weight to how great he is. That when, uh, if you, when you go to the dentist and you have to get your x-rays done of your mouth every six months or once a year, and you, you have to put on that, that lead vest in order for them to be able to take the x-rays and to do so safely. And, and it's, it's that idea that it's, it's not, it doesn't encumber you from not being able to do things, but you feel it, right? You feel the weight of what you are wearing. When I had the honor, and still had the honor, but when I first had the honor of being the pastor here, becoming the senior pastor at Palmerado Christian Church, I remember I was hired three years and two days ago, and I remember we had the, uh, a, a, month, a, a month in, we had a ceremony where Pastor Evan handed the baton to me, and we were able, he was able to pray for me, the, the elders, and uh, people were able to pray for me. We prayed for him and celebrated him after the service. But I felt a tangible weight of now knowing I, I, there's a weight to being in leadership. There's a weight to being a senior pastor, and it's a weight that I don't take lightly. 
but there's a weight to it, and it doesn't encumber me. Like, it's not that, but it's like a very tangible, you could feel that I want to honor the Lord with how we lead and serve our church. And so it's this idea that there's a weight that causes us to live differently. And God's glory, the weight of his glory covers the entire heavens. That everything under his, in the heavens, everything under his jurisdiction, everything is covered by the weight of his glory. That it's not flippant. His glory doesn't waver like the tide. It is constant. And there's weight to it to the point where we acknowledge who he is, that we've heard the report that he is one who fills the creation with his glory. But then we talk about how verse two then says that, or excuse me, verse three, then say how his praises, his praise fills the earth, that all throughout the earth sing praise. Now that goes, you know, in regards to people, it talks about how, you know, we are one church across the globe that are lifting up the name of Jesus and praising God across the world in this 24-hour period. We join our voice with billions of others around the world who are filling the earth with his praise. But it also talks about how Romans 1 reiterates how just the creation and the eternal qualities in creation bring praise to God. That Jesus talks about that if the people were silent, even the rocks would cry out to praise him. And so his praise fills the earth. That if in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, which we know is to be true, then the heavens are filled with his glory, the weight of his glory, and the earth is filled with his praise. That's, that's who he is. He's, and then his splendor stretches to the skies. That there is no way to measure the splendor and power and glory of God. And then rays flash from his hand where his power was hidden. So we start off right, the bat, right off the bat saying, Let's hear the report, God. We know the report of who you are. You are one who is gloried. You are one whose praises fills the earth. You are one whose splendor stretches to the sky beyond what we can even see or imagine. God, you are so much greater than we can even fathom or put words to. And if we try to put God in a box of our understanding of him, and we try to make sure he fits in that box, then our understanding of him is far too small. As Francis Chan says, isn't it great to worship a God that you cannot over-exaggerate? No matter how great and wonderful we say that he is, it's all the more. Because his glory fills, covers the, the heavens. His praise fills the earth. His splendor stretches to the skies. And his power is with us. So it gives us a little idea of, of hearing of the report of who God is. But then the next part of verse two that will set up the next several verses for us says how he stands in awe of God's deeds. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. And so let's look at some of the deeds that God has um, done throughout the history of Israel that Habakkuk looks back upon and is able to praise God for. So starting in verse five, Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed, but he marches on forever. I saw the tents, the tents excuse me, of Kushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. That plague and pestilence stood beside him, that commentators say that that likely refers to the ten plagues 
in Egypt, how God is a deliverer of his people, that it took 10 plagues, including pestilence and ruin of the crops, but 10 different plagues on the Egyptians to get Pharaoh to the point where he would say, let my, you know, he would let the people go. And even then, he chased after them, which we'll hit on in a few moments. But this idea of recognizing that God, one of his deeds is that he delivers his people. Back when delivery had more of a meaning other than having food brought to your door, the idea of delivery being taking someone or something of value and bringing it to the ultimate destination, that God delivered his people out of Egypt and he brought them safely to a place of rest in the promised land. Recognizing that God is a deliverer and he did that through plague and he did that through pestilence. And then we see that uh, he stood and he shook the earth that when they were um, standing or, or when the people were gathered at the Paran area, which we referred to earlier, but Mount Sinai, that there were, the people saw that the mountains were shaking, that there was an earthquake there. And it was this moment of, you know, God's like, I'm going to meet with the people. And they see, the people see how powerful and the shaking and the mountain. And they say, Moses, you go up and talk to him because we are afraid to. That they were, there was fear in the power of God. And so Moses goes up and we get the Ten Commandments and a whole bunch of other uh, stuff happens. But this point of saying the mountains crumble, the, the, excuse me, verse 5, 6. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and he made the nations tremble. Then verse 7, when it talks about the tents of Kushan and the dwellings of Midian were in anguish and distress, the nations heard about God's power and it talks about how they melted in fear because of them. That Rahab and Joshua 2, uh, excuse me, Joshua 6, they talk about how she showed that there was fear among the other nations, among the people in Jericho. And she says in verse two, and then we, chapter two, and then we see it come to fruition when the walls crash in verse six, but it says the people are afraid of you because of your God. The nations were in distress. So we see how God delivers his people. And then we start to see how he marches through the promised land. It's not just that he got them out of Egypt. He delivered them through and he ends up showing how he is powerful and we end up seeing how he is able to um, provide, a, he is able to be a warrior for his people. Verse 8, were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? You uncovered your bow, you called for many arrows, you split the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you and writhed, the torrents of water swept by, the deep roared and lifted its waves on high. It starts to see how God fights for his people. There's, there's war language about chariots and horses, and it shows how God doesn't just deliver. He doesn't just bring them safely. He fights off the enemies so that this people could go into the place of rest, the promised land. And so it talks about how, you know, they're able to use, like God was able to be over all creation and over all these different natural things like Verse uh, 10 hits on the, the torrents of rain that come down. And scholars refer to that as in ju uh, Judges 4 and 5 when Sisera, who was an enemy of Israel, was conquered because they had all their chariots and they were about to go and to conquer uh, their attack Israel. But a rain, a torrent of rain came down to the point where the chariots were rendered useless because they got stuck in the mud. 
And therefore, God, through his power, through nature, his supremacy over nature, was able to provide victory. We see a very similar story when the... Um, when the in Second Kings three, where they're digging out holes in the water, and it's against the Moabites, and the water, they, they basically say, "Hey, clear out and dig trenches or dig ditches." And the Israelites do that, and a water came out of nowhere and filled up those things. So that in the morning, the enemies looked and they saw, and they looked at the Israelites' camp, and what they saw was the water reflected, and the sun was reflecting off of it, and it looked red as if it were filled with blood. And they thought that the Israelites had given up; they'd fought each other and left. So they let down their guard and the Israelites ended up winning. We we see how these torrents of rain that we see how God uses nature in order to provide victory. We see this also in verse 11 when it says, Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. And this points us to Joshua 10 when Joshua is fighting another group of people here in the promised land. And they're about to win the victory, but he saw that the sun was going down. And he knew that if the sun set and the people, their enemies were able to escape, that they would be unable to receive the victory. And so he prays a prayer that is one of the boldest prayers you're going to say. He says, God, let the sun stand still. Let the sun stay in its place so that we can continue to fight this battle so that we can win you the victory. So the sun stood in its place and the moon on the other side of the earth stood in its place for extra for several more hours until the victory was complete because God is not only a deliverer, but he is also a warrior who fights on behalf of his people. He fights for us. That Exodus 15, 1 talks about how the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. He is not passive. Some, some deity in the sky who just has like a big white beard and just plays a harp on a cloud. Like he is a warrior who fights for his people. For his people. That one, we've surrendered our lives to Jesus, that he is on our side. And we see, you know, we've heard, Lord, about your report. We've heard of your fame. And we're starting to see some of your deeds. We want to be in a right relationship with God so we know that he's fighting for us. Verse 12, in wrath you strode through the earth and in anger you thrust the nations. You came out to deliver your people. There's that word deliver again. To save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own, excuse me, with his own spear you pierced his head with when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched you were in hiding. To, about to devour the wretched who were in hiding, excuse me. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. And some of that may go back to the exodus again. Pharaoh bringing in the, the, the horses and the chariots into the waters and God stirs it all up to rescue his people, to deliver them out of Egypt, to fight for them as a warrior, but ultimately... Ultimately, what we see are all these stories of God's victory, that he provides victory for his people. He uses the rain, he uses the sun, he uses the waters and churns it. But what are some of the deeds that create awe in Habakkuk? It's looking back and seeing what God has already done. That he's already been a deliverer. He's already been a warrior. He's already been a victor. And that is who God still is. That God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
God's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He does not change. So when we say, God, maybe our first question might be, God, I've heard about you, but are you powerful enough to do the things you say you could do? That I had a friend who said things, who, a pastor, who, a mentor of mine years ago, who talked about how, you know, it is so easy, it would be so easy for God, you know, to answer prayer, to heal this person or to do that. It's no, it's a small thing for him to answer those prayers. To which my first thought is, that's awesome. That's so cool to know how powerful he is, right? And then to which my second thought is, then why doesn't it happen more often? What do we do when God doesn't seem to act? What do we do when his answer to our prayers isn't, yes, you're getting a puppy. It's, no, you're not going to find a spouse right now. No, you're not going to have a marriage that's experiencing restoration because of division and brokenness. No, your kids are still struggling. No, you still don't have a job. What do we do when the answer isn't yes or no, but it's not yet? It's, it'll happen, but not yet. There's still a waiting. You're still going to be in the middle. And that's where I want you to be right now, the Lord says to us sometimes. Because sometimes in the middle, we don't rely on ourselves and our own gifts in the past. And we don't rely on our own ability for the future. We need to rely on him for the present when we feel like we don't know what's happening next. So Habakkuk in verse 2 talks about how he stands in awe of the Lord's deeds, the Lord as a deliverer, as a warrior, as a victor. And that word awe is this word for fear. It, it's again, it's this idea of we stand in fear the same way that the Israelites at Mount Sinai had fear when they saw the power of God. Habakkuk sees what God is saying and he stands in fear. Here's how he describes it in verse 16. He says, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. And we'll stop there because he has this fear. He recognizes who God is and he struggles and he's like, oh my gosh, God, you were so much bigger than I thought. You've done so much. And then he asks the second part of verse two. Again, this is counting as our outline for today. The second part of verse two is what resonates with many of us because we see how he can do things. We know he's powerful enough to do them. And so we, like Habakkuk, might say this, repeat them in our day. Those actions, those, those reports, those deeds, repeat them in our day. Deliver us in our day. Be a warrior for our behalf in our day. Rescue us in our day. Give us victory in our day. In our time, Make them known. So this word repeat them in our day is not just the word repeat like me saying the same thing over again, like me saying the same thing over again. It's not repeating it. It's this word for reviving. It's, it's make this alive again. God, we've seen how you've done things before. Revive those actions in our day. Bring that to life to bring us back to a faith in which we see how you are living and you are moving. God, revive those deeds in our day. But then it also talks about how make those deeds known. And you think of known, we think of head knowledge, right? We think of, I know God can do something, but I don't always take hold of that as a truth for my life. We know God can heal, but Will he do that for me? I know he can restore marriages. Will he do that for me? I know that he can help our kids with addictions and struggles. Will he do that for me? I know that he can 
provide jobs? Will he do that for me? And so how do we make something known? Well, this word known, again, has nothing to do with head knowledge. This word for known is the word in the Hebrew for, for the inward parts, for, for our, essentially for our gut, right? It's this idea of help us to know it here. Like we get it. It's in our guts. It's in our innermost parts that it's not just a head knowledge anymore. This is a felt, real, experiential truth that we know to be true because head knowledge, when we struggle, we can say, well, did I understand that correctly? Or am I misunderstanding it? When it's something that is core to our souls and it's in our innermost parts, then even in those difficult times, we are less prone to wander or waver because we know something to be true. And we know in our innermost parts that God is still doing deeds as a rescuer, as a deliverer, as a warrior, as a victor. And we need to move our understanding of God from our minds to our hearts and our guts. Like we're staking a claim and nothing can cause that to waver. That is, we got a puppy... We got Ember. One of the things that we've been doing is we got a, a tie in the back so that he can kind of roam around. And we're just taking this hammer and we're just using the rubber mallet to knock the, the um, tie further into the ground. And Shaylin's doing a little bit of it. Elisa's doing a little bit of it. Steph's doing a little bit of it. I'm doing a little bit of it. And every, every knock, it's, just, it's driving it in deeper. It's driving in the truth more clearly. It's making sure that it's solid. So no matter how much Ember pulls, it won't be affected. You and I, when we cry out to God, when we're in the middle and waiting for him, sometimes we have to wait because God is trying to drill his truth into our gut. And that doesn't happen just with one fell swoop. It happens with prayer upon prayer and moments of silence upon moments of silence, seeking him in the midst of it all. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. And we emphasize, he says, in our day, our time, he says, God, what you did, do it now. Revive it now. Make it known now. Because if God worked in a way that he did before, if there were all these crazy miracles, wouldn't more people believe in you, God? Wouldn't more people follow you, Jesus? Do the things now that you once did then. And so, God, we know you can act. Act now. And that's what where Habakkuk, he is in verse 16, and he's, there's fear, there's quivering, there's a decay in his bones. He feels weak in the sight of God's greatness and his power and his splendor and his glory. And here's how Habakkuk responds. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Yet I will wait patiently. We know that that fruition of that prayer doesn't come for decades, for God's people. But we wait patiently. And there's two different kinds of waiting. There's the passive waiting, the waiting that we just kind of throw our hands up, not in praise, but in what can I do? And we just sit and we wait. It's a kind of waiting when, you know, you're just waiting for, um, you know, sitting in the dentist's office or doctor's office, and you're just kind of waiting to be called. You're not doing anything in the midst of it. You're just kind of, just kind of waiting. It's the kind of waiting that we do when, uh, you know, we're trying to get out of the house, and kids just take a lot longer than, than you think, and hypothetically, of course, where 
kids or maybe a spouse takes a lot longer than we thought. And it's just like, okay, we're just, we're waiting. Like what, what can I do? I'm waiting and I'm trying to get things ready, but everything's ready. We're just waiting to find like the exact right shoe for whatever reason. You know, there's a passive waiting. And then there's the active waiting, right? Like this active waiting is when we know we're getting a puppy and we're waiting for that day to come. But again, there's books that are read. There's videos that we watch. We are learning what the right thing to purchase is. And we're, we're waiting for a day to come, but we're not just sitting idly by. We're actively preparing ourselves for the moment to arrive. And so it's this idea of he waits patiently. Patiently doesn't mean passively. Patiently doesn't refer to the lack of activity during it. It refers to our heart's attitude during it. It's not a passive waiting. It's an active waiting. That I had the honor of being part of uh, the Restorinate worship service and attending last week and being able to um, pray and do a closing prayer is just amazing to see. Um, here, Michelle, who did a fantastic job in her time of sharing. Dan, who did a fantastic job. Camille, doing a wonderful job. Matt, leading a time of prayer. And and seeing all that come together and people worshiping God together. And I was doing the closing prayer. So during the service, I was just kind of asking, you know, Lord, what do you want me to, how, how do I bring this together? How do we tie it together? And um, one of the things that Camille said is she talked about how the importance of the word surrender. And as I was just listening to her talk and then Dan and everything going on, I just remember feeling this, this realization uh, from the Lord, just this idea that surrender isn't giving up. Right? That's like passive, right? It's not giving up. It's letting go. It's letting go of what we want, how we want it, when we want it. Surrender is not saying I throw up my hands because I don't care anymore. There's nothing I can do. It's throwing up our hands in worship knowing that if God says it'll happen or if God is, wants it to happen, it'll happen in his time, not our own. And that's easy to say with a lighthearted example about a puppy that ha came to fruition. It's harder for us to recognize or navigate that when it's something heavier and more dear to our hearts. But if God has guided us through that, if he is working in our lives and he says that there will be no more pain, so healing will come, whether it's here or ultimately in heaven, that marriages and relationships will be restored, whether it's here, we pray that it will be. We don't give up. But we surrender our marriages to God. We surrender our kids to God. We surrender our careers to God. We surrender our health to God. We surrender. Why? Because we know that he's a deliverer. We know that he is a warrior. We know that he is a victor. We know that he is with us. That we are not alone. And we can wait patiently when we know that someone whose splendor stretches to the skies, whose Glory covers the heavens whose praise fills the earth when he is with us, then we know that we can wait patiently for him to act however he wants, whenever he wants. We don't give up. We let go of our own desires. And so as we close this morning, and we get ready to process all these things. Because some of you have been able to hear all this going on. You're like, yeah, that makes sense. And, oh, I remember how God answered that prayer. And that was awesome. I've seen him working this way. And that's so great. And this has been awesome. Some of you, some of you are right in the middle. You're Habakkuk saying, God, do these things again. Revive them in our day. Help me to know it in my innermost parts in my gut. Because I don't feel it now, Lord. And if that's you, if you are in that place where you're in the middle you're Habakkuk, 
crying out, then I encourage you to not let the things that we don't know eradicate or, or devalue the things that we do know. We don't know the future. We do know who holds the future. We, do, we don't know the answers, but we do know to whom we can ask the questions who has the answers. We don't know how we will be delivered from this pain, but we do know God is a deliverer. We do not know how to fight our own battles. Or maybe we're not able to fight our own battles, but we do know God is a warrior. We don't know how we're going to see victory in this battle that seems like it's unwinnable. But we do know that God is in the business of winning victories that his own people couldn't fight for on their own. And we can wait patiently, actively and patiently. And we throw up our hands again, not in giving up, but in surrender to who God is, to the report of who he is and the deeds that he's done, asking him to do it again when he sees fit. So surrender to God and pray to him. Seek him in the midst of all your struggles and cry out specifically about whatever it is that you're crying out to, but run to him, not from him, in the, in the waiting. Sometimes in the middle is right where he wants us to be because he wants us to be close to him. Will you pray with me? We thank you, Lord, that you are with us, Lord. We thank you for your power and your glory that covers the heavens, for your praise that fills the earth, for your splendor that stretches the skies, for the fact that you are a deliverer, you are a warrior, you are a victor, and you are with us. God, I pray that you would stir within us an overwhelming sense of your presence this morning. I pray for whatever dynamic that we are praying for and we are asking for and we are waiting for and it feels like you're not acting now, God, may we surrender it to you, not because we're giving up, but because we are letting go. May we hold out our hands this moment, not in exasperation and, and giving up, but holding them out to surrender and offer up to you our hurts, our habits, our hangups, our wounds, our struggles, our addictions, our questions, our pain, our lives. We surrender it to you, Lord. Meet us here again so we may have a breakthrough in our relationship with you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.